Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is David Pope, who is a private counselor and coach for depression, anxiety, and bereavement. He is available worldwide via video call, and his groundbreaking online course for depression, Depression, A New Hope, is now available. You know, you work so much with people who have struggled with depression, anxiety, bereavement, trauma, anger, stress, divorce, and also helping people improve their sleep. Where does this journey for you begin? Mm. Well, the story begins, I suppose, at six years old, where I, there's something that obviously wasn't quite right. I teachers would pull me aside at school and say that I looked isolated, I looked troubled, um, I looked intense, and this was happening frequently. And I just felt off. Nothing had triggered it, it's just the way it was. And even though the intentions were positive and honorable on the teacher's part, I feel that the constant questions and comments kind of exacerbated my sense of isolation and the sense that I was different than most people at school. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I would imagine all, all those questions and, and, you know, observations by the teachers uh, also would make you feel uh, not accepted, like you're not a part of, like you're, you're different than the rest. Absolutely. I mean, I've got memories of standing outside the classroom very often, you know, just as, as the lesson was starting and everyone was gathering in the class, ready to start the class. And I was just like observing people. I was just, it was as if I didn't feel part of them. I didn't feel part of the group. And it's extraordinary because I carried that for the rest of my life. I mean, even into my 20s and 30s, where, you know, I had a decent amount of friends. Uh, they were more sort of, they came in, uh, from as a result of being married. And, uh, you know, we had a social circle. But even then, even then, there was always a sense of isolation. Uh, even if I was in a crowd of people, there's just this sense of loneliness, and it's me and everyone else. So did you grow up an only child, and where did you grow up? So I, I'm a Londoner, uh, as you gathered probably. <laughs> and I grew up in London, and um, I have two elder sisters, so I was, I was the youngest. And... I had a great upbringing. I mean, my parents were loving parents and supportive, and my family were loving and supportive. Um, it just, uh, I was pretty much the black sheep of the family, you know? And um, as time went on, um, I started becoming very depressed and very anxious. And then I was relentlessly bullied at primary school and then secondary school. So right up to the age of 16. And um, it didn't help that I had a very tough dad and he was a very loved and revered person. So he touched a lot of people's lives, but he was a very tough guy, a very macho guy. So that created such a sense of inadequacy on my part and I held him on such a pedestal. Um, so yeah, that, that, the whole kind of man thing was a real problem for me. So I hear you saying two things there, David, on one hand, you said that your parents were loving and supportive. And then on the other hand, you said your dad was tough and it, it almost sounded like, uh, there was a bit of, uh, fear on your part to fully express yourself around him. Oh, completely. I was so concerned about how I looked in front of my father. I was so concerned with his perception of me. So 
you know, very often after I'd been bullied by X amount of guys, um, I'd come home and most of the time I'd kind of keep it to myself, but there were occasions where I'd tell my dad and, you know, he was doing his best. He, he wasn't sort of trying to work against me or anything like that, but he would say things like, well, look, when he does this to you, why don't you do this? You know, and then he, he'd show me like a move, right? He'd show me what to do. And again, it was, uh, that was so frustrating for me. And, it, and it's, it's frustrating just thinking about it because I, I didn't want to be me. I wanted to be him, right? And that kind of also began an obsession with uh, macho type characters, right? on the television and the, and the movies. And I just became obsessed with, with toughness, but it, it wasn't me. That was not me, but it's someone that I was desperate to be to, to cope with the situation. So when, when you think about all the characters that you watched on TV, that you became obsessed with in terms of toughness, besides your dad, who, who was to you the epitome of toughness? as you were growing up? It's just like the Stallones and the Schwarzeneggers, those kind of idols, you know. Um, and I'd watch these movies over and over. And I, I, I learned every line from every Clint Eastwood film and every, you know, all those kind of tough guys. And, um, but, you know, my dad was a tough guy and he, he would constantly tell me stories about when he did this and when he did that, you know, uh, he was an army guy and this, this guy would pick on him, this guy would pick on him, and then he did this, right? So my father would constantly be talking about his tough guy stories. So I had to contend with that as well. So, um, yeah, it, it, uh, it was a big challenge for me. It was a big challenge. I want to go back a few steps because earlier you mentioned um, I'm still trying to balance the two ideas of you came from a loving, supporting family, and yet you felt like the black sheep of the family. Can can you tell us more about that feeling of being the black sheep and, and what that means? Well, I didn't have very many friends. I was I was quite a loner, so I would spend hours in my bedroom, just uh, getting into music. I was a really keen musician. So I just used to play for hours and practice. And I wasn't out with friends. I wasn't socializing. I wasn't uh, really an integral member of any kind of society. I was just on my own. I always had like one best friend. So one best friend at school, maybe one best friend outside of school. But, you know, my family, they were all very sociable. They had loads, you know, my parents had loads of friends. My sisters had loads of friends. So from that perspective, I was like the odd one. But as well as that, I was very socially awkward. I was very socially uncomfortable. So I have so many memories of going to different functions, different parties, different social functions. And just sitting there around the table, feeling so uneasy. And what I would do is very often, you know, it'd be a, a function that my parents had attended with me. And so it would be, uh, uh, I would be sat at a table with friends, uh, with children of their friends, right? And uh, I would be asked a question like, you know, where do I live or what's my name? And I would come up with a silly response because I didn't know how to interact. And then I was made fun of that and I was bullied because of that. So I wasn't just bullied in school. I was bullied quite frequently out of school as well. Just uh, psychological as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how that kind of manifested. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I completely can relate. My my family is uh, Belizean. Um, well, my mom's side is from Belize. My dad's side from Alabama. So I, they're very gregarious on both sides, and I'm very much more of an introvert uh, uh, in the family. 
And I think my introversion was masked because I am very uh, athletic and active. And so, um, you know, I was always seen around people uh, because I was playing basketball, football and the like. But I, I never really wanted to hang around people just to be hanging around. Uh, yeah. If we were hanging around, there had to be a purpose or meaning behind it, you know. Um, and so I can see how music for you uh, probably felt like a, a refuge. Uh, were books that for you also, or was it just the music? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been a pretty voracious reader since as young as, say, six, seven, eight years old. I mean, I've got memories of us going on holiday and me just staying in the car reading, <laughs> trying to finish uh, whatever book I was finishing. And I've still got a great love of reading. Um, and I suppose why I love reading so much is that it just it gets me out of my head. Um, you know, I can switch the focus from whatever intrusive thoughts I'm having and try and ingratiate myself in a storyline or um, a, a, a line of thought. Or, so that, that was the real appeal about books. But I think back then it was about escape. And now it's more about diversion and intellectual stimulation. Right. There's so much we can learn from about empathy and compassion about the world through books. And, and it becomes uh, more fascinating as as we get older versus uh, more of a form of escapism or avoidance when we're younger. Um, but it can yeah. serve both purposes. And, you know, for me, books, it's all about connection. Like I can read. Uh, a very similar themed book by, you know, covering the same kind of themes, but maybe one particular author will particularly stand out to me because of how I connect with the author's language, with how I connect with that, with the author as a personality. Because very often you hear, you hear the same messages, you can hear the same rhetoric, the same kind of writing style, but it's, it's, um, for me, it's really about the connection with the author. That's what makes the difference between a book that you can't put down and, you know, just a book that you like and is entertaining. So, um, and I think, I think the same goes for just listening to somebody speak about some, uh, a subject. It's about how you connect with them as a person. As again, you know, we often hear uh similar kind of uh, dis discussions from a whole host of people but it's just how you connect with a, a specific individual and that's what really resonates with you yeah right now i'm reading anna karenina and oh yes yeah have you read it a long time ago yeah and there's a character in there who he's very wealthy or i won't say very wealthy but he's he, he has means and he has servants and uh, one day he worked out, uh, you know, out in the field with them, and he found that he was like, "Wow, I feel so alive working out here with the with the servants." Uh, you know, like he's swinging his scythe, and mm. he just can't seem to get enough. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't finished the book, so maybe he does, and he's like, "All right, that was cool for two days," but nice. right now he's just like enthralled and obsessed with working out in the fields, and he likes to the exhaustion that he feels and the sweat and the, you know, uh, working with others and being outdoors and, and all those things that come with it. And it, it, and now I'm like absorbed into the book, you know, because I also love to exhaust myself physically. So you're right. There are characters that, uh, or storylines that we connect with that give us a, a feeling of, uh, that can tap into how we want to feel and remind us of what our values are. Sure, and it, it makes us feel more integrated. If we can, you know, it goes back to um, one of the biggest challenges that I have with 
some of the clients I see is just a lack of validation and a lack of you know emotional support whether they're going through mental illness or whether they're experiencing grief it's a lack of understanding it's a lack of empathy it's a lack of validation and that adds to the struggle so when you feel understood when you feel integrated it, it it's uh, life changing you know it can create such a transition in your life because one of the hugest challenges for humanity is feeling isolated. Can you say more about that in, in terms of uh, what it means to feel? Uh, well, let's let's go let's go a bit more specific. What was the time for you where you really felt understood? What was that moment? What was that experience like? Who was a part of that? And uh, tell us more about why, like, isolation is feels so threatening and detrimental uh, to us. Hmm. I um, had a double bereavement when I was 25 years old. So I lost both my parents within a year of each other. And I got, was in a very, very dark place. And as a result, I organized a grief counsellor to help me with my grief. And I ended up seeing her for two years. And I would say that um, she was probably the first person who truly got me and who I could be completely open and honest with. Um, so I'd say she was probably the, the first individual that I just literally poured my heart out to. And... There was no holding back. I would say that the reason why isolation is really, really, um, really affects your mental and, and physical health is because we are wired to be with people. We are, we are designed that way. We're built that way. And, you know, loneliness is an epidemic. It's an absolute epidemic. And even though there are people out there who are loners, I mean, I would classify myself as a loner, but there's no way I could function without people. No way. I mean, I have a family. And so even though I have an innate need for privacy and space is, you know, having space is really important to me. But at the same time, I'd be lost without my family. So it's like one needs a balance, or certainly people who need to be on their own, which is certainly a need I can relate to. I still need that balance. I still need love in my life. So it's an interesting dichotomy in that, in that sense. I, I want to put a pin in that because I definitely want to come back to that but i want to take a few steps back because you mentioned that you do have a family uh a wife what's your family set up right now wife two kids three kids what are we talking mm -hmm. so i have a partner uh, and i have uh, a five-year-old daughter but i've also got two daughters who are elder so they're one is 21 and one is 20 so i've got Quite a, a wide variety of children. <laughs> so you have a partner and three kids. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and, and the reason why I'm, I'm asking about that is because, you know, going back to your childhood and you talked about your father um, instilling this idea of what a man is and what toughness is. And, and you mentioned you have some physical examples of, you know, I'm sure like this guy picked on me and here's how I responded. What were the messages he gave you about relationships and women and how a man shows up for that? My dad was a very, what I would say, a very honorable, respectful uh, chap. I mean, you know, high morals, high principles, fantastic values, 
I mean, he's just the best dad that anyone could have. So um, from that point of view, his guidance was, you know, in, in that respect, from differentiating between right and wrong and developing core principles, core values, he really did his job well. Um, I would say in terms of uh, communicating to me about relationships and about how to treat women, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I only had to, I mean, I, I saw what a great husband he was. He was, you know, a fantastic husband. He doted on on his wife, my mother. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's how one uh, develops those, those core principles. It's by seeing it in, in, in living proof. Where, you know, whatever one's experience is, one tends to replicate that. Um, so I would say that his generation was very, very different to the, my generation and certainly um, the younger generation now in the sense that in those days you met, you met, you know, the bloke met the girl and in a few weeks or months you were married. Um, there was no messing around. There was no living with, with each other. So very, very different. So I think, um, I mean, I, I've been dating this girl and he literally wanted me to marry her, you know, within a few months. So he was very sort of, you do the right thing, you make an honest girl of her, all that, all that kind of thing. Um, but again, you know, that was that generation then. And it obviously worked because there was far less divorce in those days. But um, I would say that I don't know if that would have been a great idea if I would have got married so so quickly. The Yeah, how old were you when you got married the first time? So I was 31. And if he would have had his way, I would have been married at 24. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah say no more yeah well you know I, I asked that question because there are you know so many people who enter into a relationship or um, work career based off of uh, their parents expectations or ideas of them and and it's not until we get a little older I'm 45 that mm -hmm. we start to realize that we were operating on someone else's uh, off of somebody else's blueprint or ideology. And I think that's part of what the midlife crisis is for a lot of people, where you kind of have this awakening of, oh, I don't, I don't care about this anymore, or I'm not driven by that anymore. And, and here's what really connects with my soul or Here's where I feel integrated, as as you talk about, and that can take some time, you know, to to find a tribe of people who understand you, who get you, and give you space to let you experiment and grow and um, and forge your own path. Sure. When you talk yeah. about needing space, because you talked about your family, you're like, I need love and also need space. I think for a lot of people in relationships, creating those, setting those boundaries of space uh, is very challenging. What, what was, how's that conversation been between you and your partner and, you know, your, your children um, in terms of creating space? And, and when you say space, can you define that for us? Is that just physical? Is there an emotional space? Uh, can we explore more about that? Sure. Well, I would say more in a physical space. So, for instance, if I, because I uh, do a lot of work from home. So, if I'm working, uh, in, which I've got like a converted office, if I'm working and I'm in the middle of a call or I'm in the middle of a conversation, chat, um, you know, my partner is respectful of that. And won't just barge in while I'm in the middle of it. Obviously, if it's an emergency or she really needs to speak to me, then of course. But generally, and the same same applies 
on you know uh, on the on the flip side, if if my partner is uh, busy and is engaged with something, then I'll give her the physical space um, to, to to do that. I think a lot of it is about being mindful of each other's needs, and that is facilitated by regular communication. So. I think one of the key ingredients in relationships and making them work is just having the other person's needs in your head, being mindful of them. And if we're mindful of them and we're prepared to work at it, then it just makes it a bit smoother. If Because ba- balance is so important. You know, the problems start when you start feeling that, well, I'm doing X, Y, Z, and she's only doing X. So therefore, I'm going to start resenting that, right? And to avoid that, that's when communication comes in. Because if I say to my partner, look, this is really important to me. So, um, can, you know, if you can respect that and you can work with me on that, then obviously that's going to be really conducive to our relationship and keep it harmonious and vice versa. I can see that this is really important to you and I will do my utmost to facilitate that. So in the end, it is work, but it's just being mindful of each other's needs. But I think that coupled together with uh, there being balance is absolutely critical. Relationships never work when you've got one person in the relationship just doing everything. Literally, because then, well, that's not a union. That's just, you know, you might as well be single. Because the whole idea of having a union is that you contribute towards each other's life. You, you know, you share your life and what's going on in it and your challenges and your achievements. If you're just doing everything and not getting anything in return, then not so much, you know, to do with selfish reasons, but it's just, well, why am I doing this then? You know, because in the end, you're kind of, you're working towards a, a, a shared goal. Absolutely. And when you're working towards a shared goal, it allows you to move more efficiently and effectively forward and to grow and build. But David, you talked earlier about you know, how awkward it was for you to socialize and, um, you know, you would try to crack a joke and you were bullied for that. How did you end up meeting your wife? Was it an arranged marriage or did, did you, uh, did you finally learn how to speak to women? What, what happened? Hmm. Well, I was working in, uh, in a job and I, um, she was working for the same company and we just happened to um, speak on the phone. I think she was an admin and I was in a, a sales orientated type job. And uh, I was making a laugh. I was just cracking joke after joke after joke. And uh, we started developing a, con- you know, a, a kind of connection. And uh, before I, you know, we knew it, we were dating and uh, the rest is history. But I, um, I didn't, I didn't go out with, many women up to that point so maybe a handful um sadly that that that, uh you know my um marriage ended up in divorce and the partner i'm with now is 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 somebody else but um yeah it it uh was kind of just meant to be i suppose we just met that way and um as i said you know she brought a whole social circle to our life. Uh, and generally in the community that I lived in, it was usually the woman that did that. It was usually the woman that brought all the friends. And um, yeah, but as I say, even so, I, I just never quite enjoyed it. You know, I, it was always an effort for me. It was always an effort for me to socialize. Most times that we went out to meet people, I was dreading it. I was absolutely dreading it. It was such a massive effort for me. And I think as well, I 
I always struggle to really meet people on, you know, that that kind of that I, that, that I could connect with. It was always a struggle for me. Not so much lately, the last five, 10 years, but during that time, I just, um, it, yeah, it was difficult. And because of that, I was just so bored. I was so bored with the types of conversations that we were having. I was unstimulated and I just wanted to switch off. So it caused a lot of problems because she was this, you know, sociable person and party animal. And, but the crowds we used to hang out in, they just weren't my type of people. So it, it sounds like you love uh, like big talk, you know, to, to talk about ideas and philosophies rather than uh, things and people. Absolutely. My closest friends have been either, you know, uh, counselors or musicians. <laughs> they're, they're, they're my closest friends. So, um, yeah, I, I either like to have deep chats or I like to play music with people. Um, that, that tends to be where I'm at, you know, my, uh, that's, that's when I have a, uh, experience, uh, deep connections with people. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate that society is geared towards, uh, extra extroverts. And if you're extroverted and outgoing and have a lot of friends, then you're normal and okay. And if you're introverted and, you know, and it, it, we sound similar, David, where, you know, my books are my best friends. I, I have, a, I was I'm about to go buy like three or four books today. And, um, you know, I, I probably won't read them for another couple of years. I still got a million books that I, I want to uh, work through. But there's something satisfying and nourishing about reading. Um, and also just the, the way that people can phrase things in such a, a, a deliciously uh, delectable uh, bite. I, I mean, that's the sentence mm -hmm. is just, I can't believe somebody could it, it weave together a, a prose such as, you know, like the, the Russian novelists and, um, yes. and, and some other uh, uh, authors that I've gotten into. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at, at this stage, you, you talked about the last past five to 10 years, you've it's not been so much of a struggle for you what's changed for you hmm. i think i i found my passion i found my passion um and it, it's interesting because very often you know I, I counsel a lot of people who are struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness and one of the first things I say is find your passion because when you find your passion, it opens up doors. It opens up a part of you that creates that sense of connection because feeling isolated is feeling disconnected. That's what it is. Isolation and disconnection are, you know, are essentially the same thing. So, I, I got into counseling probably about what was it out nine years ago, and I'd studied for several years, and um, what what gave me such a sense of fulfillment from it was having someone stood across for me, openly uh, be in distress, whether they're suffering from depression or bereavement or anxiety or trauma. And, you know, uh, engaging in uh, several sessions over a period and just seeing their heaviness lift and seeing their sense of isolation lift. And what that did for me personally is it opened up a whole new part of me. It, it was almost like I started to see life in color for the first time because I think oh, for the best part of 40 odd years, I was seeing life in black and white. And if I ask myself why, why this transition, I think 
it just got me out of my own head that for me to be able to heal myself, I, I needed to heal other people. And I found that was, the, that was the, the only way I was going to feel a sense of completeness is seeing somebody overcome trauma or overcome struggles with depression or work with their anxiety and make it more manageable. To me, this was, yeah, a sense of completeness. So finding that passion and being able to earn a living from it reduced that sense of isolation. Now, I say reduced because loneliness doesn't really ever go away for me personally. It's, I think it's always going to be there because it's just, I think I'm just genetically sort of made that way. But it significantly, significantly helped me in, in that regard. I really want to highlight for the listeners and for myself, for us all, you know, the significance of healing ourselves by healing others. You know, I'm in uh, a Sugar and Carbs Anonymous group, and one of the things they emphasize is service. And the other day I was sitting around bored, unstimulated, as you mentioned, and I really have a passion. You talked about passion. I really have a passion for cooking. And, and I realized that I, I love cooking, but also love sharing what I've created. And, and so I made some brioche bread, which I've never made before, but I made it from scratch. I saw a TikTok video and I was like, that looks easy. And of course it's not easy. It took me 10 hours because uh, I didn't have all the ingredients. I have to keep running back and forth. But in making this bread, uh, I met people uh, who I got, had a chance to give it to and and share it with. And I, I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not started on a journey of following my passion, making the bread, and and then, you know, sharing it with others. And it was so rewarding and nourishing. And on a day where I typically would have eaten a lot of sugar and carbs and, uh, uh, you know, just fallen into some uh, bad habits, I had a, a very nourishing day and I slept like a baby that night. And so, you know, I, I think so much focus now has been on self-help, but it's really on um, helping others, you know, emphasizing, you know, you help yourself by helping others. So I, I thank you for highlighting that, David. Well, what's interesting is that, for instance, I have a lot of people that come to me with depression and one of the strategies to help with depression that I talk about a lot is cooking because there's so many parts of the cooking process and experience that help with depression. So for instance, one thing that um, is synonymous with cooking is that you have to get out of your house, go to the shops, buy the ingredients, and come back. So already, you've changed your environment. And one of the great things with uh, depression is to change your environment. Get out of your house and take off somewhere. So that's number one. Then you've got the ingredients. Now comes the creative aspect, so the creative component. So you're making something out of nothing, and that's creative. When we engage with our creative brain, it's it's stimulatory effect. And again, that's the total flip side to depression, because when you're depressed, you are just in a in a state of either numbness or just not wanting to do anything or I often describe it as the feeling of no feeling. But now that you're engaged and you're creating this recipe, you're making something from nothing. And then as you rightly point out, you're now sharing it with others. So now you have a sense of connection. Then you, you're, you have the appreciation, because as you, as you say, 
people will compliment you and that will make you feel good. And that will also make you feel as though, you know, you're contributing to their experience. So it's really interesting how on so many levels, cooking is actually uh, a great strategy to deal with most types of mental illness, you know, even anxiety. Anxiety is all about getting caught up in intrusive thoughts. What better way to get out of your head and get focused on something like cooking? You talked about depression and anxiety, and would you would you say the same thing for grief and and trauma in terms of cooking as a strategy? Well, here's the thing that. Um, Trauma is manifest in the body. So the, the best coping mechanisms, the best strategies to deal with trauma are physical. You can do a lot of cognitive work for trauma and for depression and for anxiety. But the physical strategies, in my opinion, are the most groundbreaking just because the Whatever trauma one has experienced, it's, it's going to manifest physically. It's going to manifest in their body. That trauma has to go somewhere. And here's the thing. So very often one experiences childhood trauma or trauma when they're an adolescent. At that age, you don't know how to process emotions. You don't know how to communicate those emotions. So you end up repressing them and you stuff them down. But guess what? They get repressed into your physiology, into your body. So that's why yoga, deep breathing, meditation, walking in nature, running, cycling, swimming, whatever it is, the, the, the physical activities work the best to release that trauma from, from your nervous system. Wow, that, that's fascinating because I know when I'm feeling um, flooded with emotions, uh, Michelle comes over and she puts her hands on my chest to press mm -hmm. down on it. And, and that's very soothing. And as is swimming swimming walking hiking you know i was just diagnosed with asthma and uh so i have to limit my hiking and um but so i, I i'm very adamant about getting my ten thousand steps in every day mm. uh, and yeah absolutely i've been in a number of car accidents and and uh, uh, experienced traumas on different levels and, and so like i recognize there's a level of physical activity and breath work alternate nostril breathing that i have to incorporate into my daily practice when uh, so for trauma you talked about the importance of 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 uh, uh being physical and tapping into your physiology uh cooking uh how would you describe that that's not a that wouldn't it, it is a physical activity but is it the fact that it it incorporates being outside being social is it seems like cooking just taps into every aspect of uh, of our well-being Precisely, cooking is the best of both worlds because it is physical and it's obviously a social, social activity as well. So, yeah, you're, you're getting double benefits because you are moving your body in, in, a, in a sense. And obviously, you've got all the piles of washing up afterwards. And it's interesting because... Um, you know, again, going back to the person that's struggling with depression, very often um, I'll say, okay, how did you spend your day today? And they'll tell me. And very often it's, you know, they weren't as productive or uh, busy as they would want to be. And I'd say, well, why don't you go and do some chores? Go and do some chores. 
go and tidy the house, go and do the washing up. There's all that kind of activity is just, you know, doing something is better than doing nothing. So when you're cooking, as I said, it's not just the cooking. You also have to do all the cleaning up afterwards. And again, it's moving your body. You're engaging with something. Now, you can still be anxious and depressed whilst you're cooking and whilst you're moving around the kitchen and putting things away, etc. But it's better you're doing that than sitting on the sofa and just wallowing or lying on your bed. And listen, sometimes you do have to do that. But uh, yeah, so I think I think with cooking, you are there are just you know a multitude of, of benefits. So I, I mean, it, it, I think it'd be safe to say that this rise in depression and anxiety and isolation is because we're not cooking as much, right? It's it's like it's so ingrained in the evolutionarily, cooking was a was a tribal thing, was a group thing, was a collaborative uh effort and where you know maybe the men went out and hunted and got it and then the women cooked it or the whole tribe cooked it whatever it was and then there was music playing and it was dancing it it was a time to feast and, and festivities and now with us microwaving everything we've lost the one thing that was really keeping us all together you know between a drive through uh, you know, places and, uh, you know, two-minute microwave meals, uh, cooking is something that is really the glue for our mental health, it sounds like. And I also get a lot of people coming to me um, struggling after they've lost a loved one. And again, something that I'll be thinking to ask them is, are you eating? What's your appetite like? And it's the first thing that gets neglected. Why? Because when you're under duress or when you're stressed or when you're anxious, uh, the inclination to eat a healthy meal pretty much goes down the tube. So, and that, that is probably because you don't really want to show up for yourself because of your emotional state. You know, I know that when I'm feeling stressed or when I'm feeling grief, I don't want to eat. The thought of eating is just not on my radar. In fact, my, my mind is cast back to when I lost my parents. I remember the day where everyone came back to the house and my sisters had made a mound of food and I, the thought of eating was just, you know, I didn't want to go there. But people made sure I ate because the last thing I wanted to do was to add to my problems. Like, I'm grief-stricken. I'm, you know, I've, my, my whole world's just collapsed. But don't add to that problem by making yourself physically ill. Because if one doesn't eat, you're going to get ill, right? So I was lucky that I had people who made sure that I ate. And something that I'll say to my clients is, no matter what you're feeling, no matter how grief-stricken you are, make sure you eat. Because otherwise you're just running on adrenaline. And you're not going to recover physically or emotionally unless you have that fuel to do so. I love that. Do you cook at all, David? Are you your chef? I cook every day. Get out I of here. It. What's your I thing? I love it. What's your thing in the kitchen? I make very British meals. <laughs> so, um, although, funny enough, uh, I make a mean lasagna. 
So, um, yeah, I, I make a lot of sort of uh, spaghettis, the bolognese. The, now, we, we eat a lot of meat, a lot of chicken, a lot of fish. Um, risottos. Uh, yeah, I, it's quite a, uh, quite a lot of um, oriental type food. But I love cooking. And again, it, it's a good diversion for me because very often I can be 9, 10, 11 hours in front of a laptop or, you know, in, in, in sessions. And I, I, you know, I sometimes have to make myself get up and get in the kitchen because, you know, it's very easy just to get caught up, right? But getting in the kitchen is my way of just stepping out of my work life. And again, it's, it's a, a physical, um, it's, I, I, I view it as a physical strategy, a physical strategy, because there's a lot of moving around. I've got to cook for, you know, my family and uh, get all the pots and pans out and get all the ingredients out. So it, it's like therapy for me. Absolutely love that. David, I feel like we can talk forever. There's so many, mm. uh, there's a million questions I could ask you, but uh, we do have to wrap up. And is there anything uh, that, any strategy, any technique? Because I know you work with people who have struggled with anger, uh, stress, chronic illness, divorce, breakup, improving their sleep, bereavement. Uh, is, are there any strategies or tools or tactics that you think would be beneficial to the listeners that we haven't discussed? Mm. So obviously there are there are different strategies for different challenges. You know, one great strategy for anger is a punch bag. So I've got a punch bag. I I have a lot of anger that you know I have to manage. Um, I was a very angry kid. So I find when I hit a punch bag for half an hour, the anger's gone. The anger's gone. Because anger is just chemical stresses it's just physical that's it and it's extraordinary i can be in in the worst angry mood and i'll go and hit that bag and the anger's gone um i would say a great strategy for dealing with depression or anxiety is something called reframing lists so reframing this as a way of changing your perceptions towards things. So let's say I have a lack of self-worth or I feel like a failure or I feel hopeless. I will make a list of different perceptions to that statement. So for instance, what have I achieved in the past? What adversity have I gotten through? What trauma have I survived? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So those are two good strategies to work with. And what about grief? I know you talked about eating and the importance of that, but for someone who you know maybe have have lost both of their parents, um, what would you suggest for them? There are different coping mechanisms for different stages of grief. In the early stages. It's about letting the grief physically out. So crying those tears is medicinal, and that's how you heal. Because when the tears flow, the anxiety flows, the depression flows, the guilt flows, the anger flows, the shock flows. It's a physical release. Again, going back to that whole physicality. And it's just going through the whole digestion phase, the whole processing phase. Digestion is about soaking up the event. The processing is about learning how to adjust, to actually say, right, where do I go from here? How do I get through the next hour? How do I get through the next day? Later stages are that you have different coping mechanisms. You can write a letter to your loved one. Obviously, they're not going to get it, 
but it's very therapeutic because you can it can express everything you want to express in that letter. You can light a candle. You can have a keepsake box full of memorabilia. You can cook foods that they used to cook. You can go to places they used to go to. So just different stages have different different coping mechanisms. So it, it sounds like that the first stage is, like you said, the, uh, more about the physical relief in terms of dealing with uh, uh, grief, uh, the the um, releasing through crying, through maybe shouting, um, you know, yelling, that um, uh, even maybe being more active, uh, maybe even a sauna or steam, like sweating it out. It's just about getting everything out. And then it, it sounds like the second phase of that is it sounds more nostalgia of like, all right, so how do I want to remember this person, uh, you know, sensorily through the foods that they used to cook, uh, you know, maybe putting together old photos, writing them letters. It's more about uh, how do I want to remember them? Absolutely. And one important thing to note is that sometimes people aren't able to shed those tears. Sometimes that's because of the there were maybe issues in the relationship between them and the person they've lost. And if that's the case, it's just being able to acknowledge that that's okay and that grief shows up for us in different forms. And very often in those cases, you have something called complicated grief or delayed grief or complex grief. And what happens is several years after you're lost, that's when the tears stop flowing because you've managed to work through and process all the emotions that have got stuck. And they've got stuck possibly because of the nature of the relationship. Wow. David, I really appreciate you taking this time to share with us uh, your, your experiences and also your strategies and your um, your uh, God, I, I'm having a brain freeze right now. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate this time. And, and the last question I ask this of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person on the cusp of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, David? When you're in pain, that's all you see. That's all you experience. That is how you perceive your reality. The fact remains is that in the tragic circumstances that people decide to end their life, there's obviously no going back. The difference between that and pain and suffering is that pain and suffering can end. What I would say is that no one knows what the future holds. If I would have asked you, could you have ever predicted how your life turned out? The chances are you would say, no. We don't know what is around the corner. So to just say that even though you've been suffering potentially for an extended period of time, life can change in a heartbeat. You don't know if things can change. David Pope, thank you for taking this time to be with us. Tell people where they can find you and connect with you. So there's two best ways, really, either Instagram, which is at Heal Your Grief, or my website is healyourgrief.co.uk. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. Or if you're in London or Sri Lanka or Australia, there are international suicide hotline phone numbers listed in each and every single one of the show notes. There's someone who is willing to talk to you and listen to you and understand you right now. 
but you have to make that first step. Pick up the phone, call somebody. If you can't call, there you can. There are chats, there are Facebook groups, and that information is also listed in the show notes as well as resources to help you pay for your mental health treatment. So there is help, there is assistance, there's someone who has your back, who has your six, who's willing to support you, but you have to make that first step and let them know that you need the help. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Leo. 